Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 15, 8 to 11. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. You may be seated. As you're being seated, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I need you. I need you today to speak. We need you to hear. Lord, would we see Jesus as we look at your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is John. I'm part of the team here. Um, And as many of you know, I like to open with a story or an anecdote of some kind. And the reason I do so is because I know that you're not paying attention for the first minute or so, and I need to give us a little on-ramp. No, no, no. No, the reason I like to tell stories is because I like to tell stories. It's actually a bit of a a Briars family thing. If you know, if you spent any time with myself and Sarah, you'll know that we like to tell stories. We consider ourselves raconteurs, as it were. If you spent a lot of time with my family, you'll know all of our stories. Um, You'll have heard them, and you're probably bored of them, so I'm sorry. Uh, But as a couple, we do that thing that couples do when they tell stories. And I'm sure you're familiar with it, either you're in that couple or you've heard that couple. Sarah will begin telling this story, and then she does that thing where she starts to lose confidence in the details of the story. And so she goes, John, John, you, you tell it better. You tell the story. And I know what's coming, so I reluctantly jump in and start telling the story. And I'm about a breath in, a sentence in, and Sarah will jump back in. And she said, no, 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 you're not telling it properly. You've forgotten the bit about, and so what we do is we do this sort of relay race, and I'm sure it's very cute and charming. Uh, the reason this happens more often than not is because in telling the story, Sarah will notice that I miss a sort of a crucial detail that makes sense of the whole plot. Right, I miss like a detail of where we were or what we were doing. That People are looking at me like, what is actually going on? And she has to jump in and say, no, 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 you forgot this bit. And I think that is what is happening in our text today. If you've been tracking with us, uh, we're in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, the letter that the Apostle wrote, uh, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And in chapter 15, Paul starts by saying to the Corinthians that he wants to remind them of something that they seem to have forgotten. He wants to remind them, he says in verse 1, of the gospel that he preached to them, the good news that he had shared with them. Because at the root of the Corinthian problem, and we've seen some problems, haven't we, in the first 14 chapters, the root of the problem is what we might call gospel forgetfulness. Gospel forgetfulness. They had forgotten part or parts of the story of Jesus. And if you were here last week, Brett took us through what we might call the content of the gospel. 
that Jesus died and he was buried, that he rose from the dead and appeared to various people. And the significance of these events, we know, is that the life, death, resurrection, all of them were done in order that humanity might be reconciled to God. In order that humanity might be reconciled to God. And so if we were, try, if we were to try to summarize the gospel in the simplest, pithiest, clearest way, we might say that the gospel is the good news that Jesus saves sinners. The good news that Jesus saves sinners. But today, I want to look at one aspect of this news. One crucial detail of this story that truly makes this news good news. Not just for the Corinthians and not just for Paul, as we will see in a second, but also for you. Good news for you. I want to suggest that if we leave this crucial detail out of the story, it doesn't, the whole plot doesn't make sense. The whole story doesn't make sense. Today, I want to talk about grace. Grace. So here's the points today for the note writers. Just two. Number one, our need for grace. And number two, our response to grace. Our need for grace and our response to grace. Okay, number one, our need for grace. Now, apart from theology, the study of God... One of the uh, other areas of study that I enjoy, I'm not so good at, but I enjoy, is anthropology, the study of humans, because we're interesting, aren't we? And one of the things that anthropologists note is that there is one universal human behavior that is seen uh, at all times in, in all cultures, the universal human behavior of drawing boundary lines. Now, I don't mean geographically, although we do that, don't we? We like to build walls and bridges and that sort of stuff. But I mean morally and socially. The boundaries between what is acceptable behavior and what is unacceptable behavior. Between what we consider as a community right and what we consider wrong. Between what we consider good and evil. Now, as Christians, we believe that, that morality is woven into the very fabric of our universe because we believe that the universe was created by a good God, don't we? But anthropologists, they, they, they don't tend to focus on that. They tend to focus more on the, the social utility that morality brings. You see, if we don't establish acceptable and unacceptable behavior, then we wouldn't be able to build and sustain relationships between us. We wouldn't be able to build and maintain a society of any sort. Morality, we might say, isn't just a, a natural impulse woven into the fabric of the world, which we would affirm as Christians. It's also a nurtured system, isn't it? That governs how we interact with one another, how we establish and maintain relationships with each other. And because it's about relationships... It ends up being not just what is acceptable, but who is acceptable. Not just what is good and what is evil, but who is good and who is evil. And it determines, doesn't it, who we associate with and who we don't associate with. Those who are worthy of our admiration and those who are worthy of our contempt. Those who are worthy of our love and our time and our energy and our effort 
and those who simply are not. These boundaries, we might say, they map out what I want to call a, a social landscape. A social and moral landscape that we navigate every day. In fact, you know this, even if I, you haven't had it explained like this, you know this because you navigate this landscape every day. Those who are acceptable, those who are unacceptable, those who are worthy of your time, those who are not worthy of your time. But this practice of, of boundary drawing, of line drawing that all humans at all times do, it comes with a consequence, doesn't it? It comes with a consequence. And the consequence of drawing lines, of setting boundaries, is that it necessarily divides the room. It divides us. It splits us down the middle, as it were, between those who are right and those who are wrong. I'm sorry. Between those who behave acceptably and hands. Between those who are holy, which interestingly means to be set apart, and those who are unholy. Why am I saying all of this? Well, I want us for a second to consider the life of the Apostle Paul, the author of the letter that we're going through. You see, in our text today, we have moved from Paul telling the story of Jesus to now Paul telling his own story. Paul, as it were, has enveloped himself into the story of Jesus. And if you know anything about Paul before he was a Christian, you'll know a few things. One, he was called Saul, which is really confusing if you're new to the Bible. But one thing to note about Paul before he was a Christian is that in his eyes and by all cultural measures of the time, on the social landscape, he was on the right side of the fence. He was on the right side of the fence. Look at how he describes himself to the church in Philippi. He says this. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. What he's saying there is that before he was a Christian, I had every reason to be confident in myself as a good person. I was the right type of person from the right type of family doing all the right type of things. In fact, I was so right, I was justified in persecuting those who were wrong. Because we know, don't we, that there's a sort of moral obligation on, for those of us who are on the right side. The right side of history to condemn those on the wrong side of history. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just go on Twitter. Those of us who are on the right side of the fence, there is a moral obligation, isn't there? To throw stones on those on the wrong side of the fence. You see, in Paul's mind, he was living the righteous life. He was on the right side of the fence. And if you know anything about his story, when he's first introduced to us in Acts 7, he had no hesitation in throwing stones. The first time we introduced to Paul, he's called Saul and he oversees the killing of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. And he feels justified in doing so. But then if you follow Paul's story, something happens to him, doesn't it? Something happens to him that would radically change his life and his perspective. Some of you know the story well. One day Paul is on a journey to a place called Damascus. He's actually going there as part of imprisoning Christians. He's like on a bit of a mission 
And on his way, he encounters the living Christ. He encounters the risen Jesus. In Acts 9, we read this. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly, a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, put yourself in Paul's shoes. As you can imagine, this encounter with Jesus is going to radically reorient him. It makes him radically reappraise not just who he was, but what he was doing and where he was going. To put it another way, when Paul encounters Jesus, the moral and social landscape is radically redrawn. And this is what happens when we encounter Jesus, when we truly encounter a holy God. What we realize when we encounter a holy God is that the dividing lines that separate between acceptable and unacceptable, between good and evil, between right and wrong, between holy and unholy, doesn't primarily divide through this room between us and them. It divides between us and him. You see, morality is not meant simply to establish and maintain relationships between us, among us. It is first and foremost to establish and maintain a relationship we're supposed to have with a holy God. That's the narrative of the Bible, that we, you and I, are supposed to be in relationship with the creator of the universe. What we realize very quickly when we encounter God, maybe this is fresh for some of you, maybe you encountered God a while ago for the first time. What we realize very quickly, quickly when we encounter God is that in our sin, we have a fractured relationship with a holy God. In ourselves, we are not worthy of his love. In ourselves, we are not deserving of his affection. In ourselves, we are not acceptable. We are unacceptable. And this is what Paul found out that day. Look at our text this morning. In verse 8. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul here gives us two descriptors of who he is. He's trying to paint a picture to the Corinthians of who he is. And he's not, he's not trying to brag here, right? First thing he says is, he says, I was last. I was last. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now, I think this translation misses the weight of the text. But it's, it's a good translation, but... I think it misses the weight of what Paul is trying to say here. It's not really the point that he was last in terms of order. You see, most commentators would agree that the word used here to translate untimely born, it carries with it the, the meaning of a miscarried or premature baby. A miscarried or prematurely born baby, a, a stillborn baby. So it could read, last of all, he appeared to me as if to a stillborn baby. You see, what Paul is trying to communicate here is not how late Jesus appeared to him, but how in need he was when Jesus appeared to him. 
how desperate he was for someone who had so much to boast in, in terms of earthly terms. When he met Jesus, he realized that he was weak and pathetic and dependent like a, like a premature baby. He was last. Second, he says he was least. He is least among the apostles. Unworthy to even be called an apostle. Why? Because he persecuted the church. Now remember, Paul at the time thought he was doing good when he did that. He thought he was on the right side of the fence, simply throwing stones on the wrong side. Isn't that how it goes, though? Left to our own devices, our foolish acts done with complete sincerity. Our sinful ways done in the name of good. And so the famous saying goes, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. This is the picture that Paul is painting of himself. This is what an encounter with Jesus did. It reappraised who he was, someone who was just weak and dependent, and someone who was sinful and unworthy. Christ City, this is the first thing that a true encounter with Jesus does. It redraws the boundary lines. It, it relocates us on the moral map. And it reveals to us that for all we have to boast in, for all you have to boast in, there is an almighty chasm between us and him. Now, for many of us, if not most of us, that's not new news. <laughs> for many of us, we are acutely aware, maybe just me, acutely aware of where I have fallen short this week. Acutely aware. Maybe even this morning on your way into church, trying to get the kids in the car. That's a key moment. <laughs> there is nothing like parenting, especially on a Sunday morning, to reveal how much of a sinner you truly are. <laughs> we know we're sinners. And we reflect upon the things that we have said that are just so hurtful, so foolish. The things that we have thought in our minds that are so wrong, maybe even disturbing. Maybe something you've done makes you feel so unworthy, dirty even. For lots of us, we haven't forgotten that part of the gospel. For many of us, we don't need reminding of our sin what we need today is reminding of his grace. So that's the question today. What is grace? What is grace? Well, the word translated grace in our Bible simply means gift or, or favor given from, from one person to another. Interestingly, favors or graces in the ancient world were a means by which ancient uh, relationships were established between two people. It was a means by which we would navigate the social landscape. So when the New Testament talks about the grace of God, it's talking about the favor of God that God gives to us in order to establish and maintain a relationship with us. But what the New Testament, and, and predominantly the Apostle Paul, shows us is that the favor of God is different from the way in which we show favors. It's so different that the word grace now we think of as just God's grace. It's so different. It's almost like it created a new word for us. 
God's grace is so different to the way we give favors. You see, we give gifts, don't we, to people who deserve them. We give gifts to people who are worthy of them. We give gifts to people we like in the hope that we will get something from them. We use gifts to navigate the social landscape. Theologian John Barclay says that the defining feature of God's grace in the writing of Paul, the thing that sets God's grace apart from the way that we show favor, is that God gives gifts to undeserving recipients. You see, God shows favor not to the measure that we are worthy of it. Not to those who are deserving of it, but God shows favor to the unworthy, to the undeserving, to the last, to the least, to the lost. This is the grace of God revealed to us in Jesus. This is why the good news is good news for us sinners. That we are now who we are. Why? As Paul says, by the grace of God. You know, all you are in Christ, all that has been revealed to you in the Bible about who you are now in Christ, chosen, forgiven, saved, righteous, restored, brought into relationship with God, made holy, all of that is done by grace. By grace. Grace, not because of anything that we have done, but because of what he has given to us. So that Paul can say in our text today, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And this testimony of Paul is carried through in all of his teaching. Look at how Paul describes the gospel in Romans 5. Romans 5 is my favorite chapter of my favorite book. You ready for this? For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. You see that? We, we, we might even dare to die for a good person. That's how, that's how we show favor. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Keep this on the screen for a second. Look, look, look at this again. Christ City, when did Jesus die for you? While you were weak. Like a premature baby, desperate in need of care, unable to help ourselves. Christ City, when, when did God show his love for you? While you were a sinner. When were you reconciled to God by the death of his son? While you were an enemy. Actively rebellious against God. Paul, while he persecuted the church. Christ City, Grace, God's favor towards us in Jesus is not given because of who we are, but because of who he is. It's not given because of who we are, but it's actually despite who we are. Number one, our need for grace. Our need for grace. Second, our response to grace. Our response to grace. So 
What we've seen is Paul has listed all the ways that he was and is unworthy of God's love. He was last, he was least, he was unworthy, an enemy of God. And now the text turns as a transition moment from his need for grace to his response to grace. Let's look at the text again. From verse 8, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecute the church of God. But, transition point, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. As we've seen, grace is God's unmerited favor towards us. Grace is God's unmerited, undeserved favor towards us. But if we left it there, I think it would be an incomplete explanation of what grace is and what grace does. You see, it would be true to say that Scripture teaches that grace is given to us without our deserving it. But it would be false to say that Scripture teaches that grace doesn't expect a response from us. It's given to us undeservedly, but it does expect a response from us. Now, I want to be clear here. What I don't mean, I don't mean that that we are to somehow pay God back for his generosity to us. You know, frankly, we couldn't pay it back. Such is the generosity of God to us that we, it's not demanded that we pay it back because God knows we can't pay that back. And I don't mean that, that having give us, given us this unmerited favor, that at some point along in the journey, we are supposed to then earn God's favor. You know, as, it, as if grace got us in, but it doesn't take us home. What I do mean to say, as Paul said, is that God's grace towards us is not in vain. God's grace towards you, his favor towards you is not in vain. You see, there's a common misunderstanding of grace, what theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace, the type of understanding of grace that assumes that it demands nothing of us or expects nothing from us. Let me just say that this is not what the Bible teaches. You can't read any of the New Testament, any of Paul's writings, and think that it doesn't demand something of us. That's cheap grace. In fact, Paul, having taught on grace in Romans 5, he anticipates the sort of questions that arise when you teach on grace in in Romans 6. So in Romans 6, he says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, to think that grace gives us license to sin means that we have completely misunderstood grace. Christ City, grace is God's response to our sin. And if sinning is our response to God's grace, we've misunderstood it. See, grace expects a response from you. But more than that, look what Paul says. 
Grace doesn't just expect a response from you, it empowers a response in you. Look again at how Paul talks about what grace does. He says this, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me is not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I. But the grace of God that is with me. What Paul is saying here is that grace doesn't just save us from our sins. It empowers us to stop sinning. It empowers us to to live the life that God has called us to live. God's favor towards us is an empowering favor. We might say that God's grace doesn't just change our identity. It empowers our activity in the world. So, What does this response look like? What does this activity that is empowered by grace look like for us? Well, remember what I said about the the social landscape. Remember what I said about the moral and social landscape. The, the, The grace of God not only redraws the map, it introduces a new way to navigate the landscape. It introduces a new way for us to live and move and have our being in this world. I actually think, A good summary of the Christian life would be that having received the grace of God, we are now empowered to extend the grace of God to others. Having received the grace of God, we are now empowered to extend this type of favor, not the type of favor that that the world has, but this type of favor to others. To live a life that is radically different from the social landscape that we inhabit in Vancouver. So let me end with with four practical examples of what this could look like in your life, what a life empowered by grace looks like. Number one, we give to the poor. We give to the poor. We give to the poor not because it feels good, but because we were poor and in our poverty, we received the riches of Christ. We give to the poor. Number two, we love and pray for our enemies. We love and pray for our enemies. In Matthew 5, Jesus tells us to love and pray for our enemies. Why? Because if you love those who love you back, you're just like the Gentiles and the tax collectors, Jesus says. That's the grace of the world. That's the favor of the world. But the grace of God is different. He says, Don't be like the tax collectors and the the Gentiles. Be like your heavenly Father who loved us though we were enemies of God. Number three, invite unexpected people into your life, into your homes, to the dinner table. People who can't pay you back. Luke 14, Jesus says, when you host a dinner party, I didn't say dinner party, but you know, when you host people, You know who to invite? The poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Why? Because they can't pay you back. That's the difference. That's the picture of the gospel. That just as as we have been invited to the table of God, just as we have been shown the hospitality of God, and we can't pay him back. Give to the poor. Love and pray for our enemies. Invite unexpected people into our lives, into our homes. Lastly, 
Forgive that person who has hurt you. Think about them now. Forgive that person who has hurt you. You can't do it by yourself. You can't do it. Christ City Christians are not those who are only called to show grace. We're not only called to show grace, we are empowered by his grace to show grace. In Ephesians 4, Paul says that we are to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is the Christian life. Having received grace, we are now empowered to extend grace. And so Christ City, when, when we are learning the gospel, when we are living the gospel, when we are sharing the gospel with others, and when we are reciting the gospel to ourselves, let's make sure that we don't miss out a vital, crucial part of the story. Let's not forget grace. Would you please stand as we respond?